Hi there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On today's show, we feature customer support expert Shep Hyken as he chats to Intercom's Senior Director of Product Marketing, Ali Biggs. Shep has had a career spanning many decades at the forefront of customer support. From his very early experience as a 12-year-old magician to advocating for how to care for your customers as a New York Times best-selling author, C-suite advisor and the chief amazement officer of his company, Shepherd Presentations. He's even been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. So, who better to ask about what has changed in customer service over the past generation? As you'll hear, he thinks not a whole lot. He tells Ali that people's innate desire to be treated as the valued customers they are while having their problem solved is much the same as it always was. What has changed, however, is the underlying technology. It's a really interesting chat, which we hope you'll enjoy. And if you do, we'd love if you left us a review. It helps to spread the word about our show. And now over to the studio. Hello, Shep. We're really, really excited to have you today on the show. Um, To get us started, for any of our customers who might not be familiar with your work, could you just give us a bit of a background on yourself and your career to date? I know that's a big ask, but but give us sort of the the quick overview. Uh, The quick overview. So I started my business in the 1980s. I know I look much younger than I am. Um, and I jokingly say my very first presentation was when I was 12 years old, when I was hired to do a magic show for a birthday party, a bunch of little kids screaming. And I entertained them for about 45 minutes, but I graduated from that and working in nightclubs, went to college, uh, had regular jobs as well. But when I uh, graduated college, I just said, what do I want to do? I saw a couple of motivational speakers and I thought, you know, what? I could probably do that. That looks interesting. I had a little business background. I'd had regular jobs. I entertained, so I was comfortable in front of people. And when I went to the bookstore and looked for something to speak about, I could write some a speech, I was drawn toward customer service books. And there weren't that many of them, so I bought them all, <laughs> <laughs> like three or four. And I devoured them. And I said, this is what I believed in my entire life. You know, when I was a little kid, I did my magic show. My mom said, you know, write a thank you note. My dad said, call them up and make sure they're happy. Ask them what they really like. Make your show better based on their feedback. And I didn't know that's what companies do today. Big companies, small companies, every company does. So really, you know, that's where it all started. And Over the years, I've been so lucky to work with some of the greatest and biggest companies in the world and some of the greatest small little companies in the world, uh, teaching them and working with them on building out a culture that's focused on customer service and experience. So that's what I do. Fantastic. And I had heard that you are also a member of the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. That is extremely impressive. Can you tell me a little bit about what led to that? (laughs) Well, I've been a member since the uh, late 1980s and the Hall of Fame induction, they have four or five people every year go into the Hall of Fame. And these are the who's who of professional speaking and Zig Ziglar and and Norman Vincent Peale and just amazing speakers. And then many speakers you haven't heard of, but are doing incredible things around the world. And so I was nominated 11 times, I think, 11 or 12 times. And I finally got in. They finally said, you know what? Let's give this guy a break. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll touch a little bit on this in a minute, but um, I also just want to let those listening know that you are also a New York Times bestselling author. So we'll get uh, into some of the details of your your newest book in in a few. Sure. 
So yeah, thank you for being here. Um, you mentioned a little bit about some of the things that drew you to customer service early on, um, and you'd had a pretty varied career to date. Can you kind of take us a step beyond that initial interest to what has kind of kept you connected within this realm of customer service? And you know, what were some of those the, the things that really have stemmed from that over time? Right, well, as I mentioned, since I was young, at age 12, when I did my magic show, not even knowing it was called customer service. Uh, you know, I worked at a gas station and an elderly lady pulled up on a very cold day and I went out and pumped her gas. And my manager said, hey, we're a self-service station. Why did you do that? And he said, because it was the right thing to do. She was frail looking and it just seemed like the right thing to do. So I've always believed in that. And when I started to read these uh, books that I found, my initial books, I said, I can relate to so many of these examples because uh, I kind of saw that around me as I was growing up. And more and more, the companies that I work with teach me new things all of the time. So, I mean, what really drives me and keeps me interested is that there's always something new, by the way. I mean, you take a look, uh, people ask me, what's changed in customer service? And I say, you know, really not much has changed, but everything has changed. And by not much, I mean by what people want, and I also talk about experience. I've kind of morphed into that whole customer experience world uh, stemming from service, but nothing has changed as far as customers wanting to be treated right, valued, and have a good experience. But the way we go about it has changed. The technology that is being used today to drive a better experience, to help companies create a better experience, it's, it's like exponentially higher than it used to be. And uh, there's an old, I don't know what the exact formula is, but they call it Moore's Law. Moore, I guess, was one of the inventors or early pioneers of the microchip. And for a period of time, the power of the microchip kept doubling every so often. And I kind of feel that's what's happening in the customer experience world, too, is there's so much new artificial intelligence. I just interviewed a guy earlier today who gave me a great story. He said, if you'd have if you'd have gone back 200 years and you lived it 200 years ago and you, and you know, you know, you go to a store, you're treated right. You want to come back. And yet you wake up now in 2020 and you go, Oh my gosh, things have changed. But at the end of the day, people still want to be treated the right way. So like I say, nothing's changed and everything's changed and what's changed is exciting. That's fantastic. I have a question stemming from something that you said there, or really just maybe trying to kind of bridge the gap a little bit more. You know, a lot of your career was born in, or at least started in sort of the pre-internet era, and you have nav- helped companies to navigate through this new world and these new expectations. What do you think that tech companies, and in particular SaaS companies, can really learn from some of the things that you maybe learned in the, the early days of your career? And, and what are some of those new things that, that kind of weave that traditional approach uh, into the present? Sure. So what we have to understand is that the customer's expectations are changing based on what's available out there. Also, they're being educated as to what great service looks like and what a great experience is. Companies like Apple, just open a box of your new iPod and you go, wow, this is cool. Amazon, the way they make it so easy to do business with. So they're setting benchmarks that are pretty high for a lot of people to go with. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, like you know, earlier, that nothing's changed. If you think about it, even a website or any digital channel that's being created today is being created by a human, even though it's digital, but it's to be used by a human. So the only thing that's in between human to human is this new technology. 
So uh, whether it's a website, whether it's um, a, a communication channel of any kind, I think that uh, really it's just another way to connect with a company, a customer to connect with the company. Now here is the potential danger. If you become so digital that your company loses its personality, you you immediately go into the, the world of being a commodity. And there it's hard to differentiate yourself from others. Um, it's very difficult to create empathy and an emotional connection. Very, very, very few companies have been able to do this on a digital level. But when you can, it's amazing. But most companies, at least not to date, are able to do that. You have to have the balance between technology and the human to human interaction if you want to keep that emotional connection with your customers. I, I know that's probably more that. than you wanted to hear, but uh, it's kind of where I went with that one. <laughs> no, I love that. And something that we're really big on here is just keeping internet business personal. And it's it's a difficult thing to approach, but I think that if we across all teams keep that in mind, it ultimately will, will help to keep us on the right track. So that's fantastic. You've talked in the past about the importance of sort of self-service, right? And as, as you talk about ensuring that internet businesses are, are still personal, this is something that we think about a lot as well. Um, and in fact, we actually just yesterday launched the next generation of our automated support chatbot, um, which we call Resolution Bot. I'm so excited about that. But really, I'm just curious, what advice do you have for companies that are looking to introduce more self-service options into their customer experience model? And how can they kind of keep that goal of being personalized top of mind as they do so? Sure. So there's really two questions here. It's about personalization and self-service. So let's talk about self-service first and then move into personalization. Self-service is giving control to the customer. Uh, you would think years ago, self-service was like pulling into a gas station and pumping your own gas. Kind of the same thing. You didn't want to wait for the attendant to come out and you thought, I'll get it done quicker and faster. And you know what? You're even making it a little less expensive for me to do so because back when self-service was introduced at many stations, uh, gas stations, there was an attendant and then there was a self-service island. Well, self-service became so popular that most gas stations today are self-service. All right, so there's some background. As we go into the world of customer service and experience, and I actually write about this in one of my books called The Convenience Revolution. This is the number two of the six convenience principles is giving control to your customer, making it easier for them to get information, to get answers to their questions, to resolve problems on their own, to, um, you know, self-service. If I uh, want to make a dentist appointment, I might be notified via email from my dentist, time to make your appointment. Well, I've got a choice. I can call up, wait for a staff person to answer the phone, have them pull my name up on the computer, look at my file, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, we make an appointment. Or I can log into their site, look at the calendar, and boom, I've got my appointment. That's self-service. Same thing in the automotive world. I want to bring my car in for service. Uh, but as self-service in the support world is all about giving the customer the information easily obtained so that they can get their answers quicker than any other way. And I know one of the uh, a self-service, I even considered, you know, a chatbot as a self-service because you're able to, you know, really get it quickly. You don't have to wait on hold for a rep to come on and talk to you. Uh, you can ask some questions right away. And for quite a few issues, problems, questions, whatever, this is a really powerful way 
of getting the customer the information that they need. Our goal is to reduce friction, and that's what self-service does. It helps reduce friction and become a more convenient experience. How do you create these automated or self-service experiences without losing that kind of personal element of it? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, they if you're going to do, especially in the messaging world, which is what you're all about, you want to make it so it doesn't appear to be automated. People can know it is, but they like the fact that they're communicating as if they would talk to a normal person or type back and forth in a messaging you know, environment to a normal human being. I think that's number one. Number two is it's not about really personalization. It's about keeping the connection. And that is if at any time I feel that my self-service option, by the way, this is part of self-service, is not working the way I want it to work, there should be an immediate, fast, quick, seamless bailout to a human being mm -hmm. who can pick up the conversation where it's been as opposed to having to go back and start over again. So keep it conversational and escalate the most challenging of conversations to humans as quickly as possible for resolution. Love well, that. you said that a lot short and shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a product marketer. That's my job. You're a great summary. Great summary of that. <laughs> Excellent. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So now let's transition to talking a bit about your latest book, The Cult of the Customer. Uh, can you tell our listeners a bit <laughs> what they can expect from this book? Sure. So the original version was written about 12 years ago. Uh, it's been updated. All the stats and facts are now no more than, oh, I, I'm going to say a year or so old because they have changed. Uh, interestingly, they've changed in the direction we want them to change for the most part. There is some stories that I took out, some examples of companies. I did leave some in there that were still relevant stories, even though they may be, uh, you know, some companies that may or may not be around. Had to get rid of one guy who's now in jail. I won't mention who that is. <laughs> but anyway, it's updated and it's new. And so this book, I, I started to think about what is it that customers go through as they do business with a company? And 
by the way, the word cult is not a dirty word. Okay. Uh, I did not come up with the title cult of the customer. The, the publisher did. The first publisher was Wiley. Sound Wisdom is publishing it this time around. But they said, would you write a book and title it this? And I went, oh, that's a hmm. kind of a weird title. I happened to meet the woman who is, uh, she came up with the Aflac commercial. Okay. You know, Aflac. Uh, I won't do the duck voice. <laughs> right, right. But you know what's cool? You don't forget the duck voice, do you? That's true. You notice it. You may not even like the commercial or you may love the commercial. It doesn't matter. You noticed it. And I asked her about that word cult because I was considering not writing the book with that title. And she said, well, if you're walking through the business section, you're looking through books and you see the word cult, chances are your eyes are going to be drawn to that, wondering what is that about? And so I thought, great idea. So I stuck with that cult of the customer title. The word cult is not a bad word. It's a scary word for some because they associate it with some fanatical type organization. And the reality is anybody or any group of people that get together on a regular basis with the same beliefs, that's kind of what a cult is. And that means if you're in a group of friends that every Sunday meet at the park to run and work out together, like it's your religion, that's like a cult. So the cult of the customer is a cult that most companies want to belong to because they want to take care of their customers. And most companies are passionate, if not even fanatical about it. So that's where it all kind of comes into play. Uh, the word cult is derivative of the Latin word cultus, which is about care and tending. And if you create an organization that cares about its people and its customer and tends to their needs, I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't want to do business with someone like that. So can you talk us through what you call the five cults in your book? Sure. And maybe I'll mm -hmm. say them out all out loud real quick for our listeners. So first is uncertainty, alignment, experience, ownership, and amazement. Take us through yep. those. So, uh, and, and you could call them cults or phases that are, are, you know, steps that customers go through. So the first time you do business with a company, maybe you've heard they have an amazing reputation, so you want to do business with them, but you, you're hoping that you're going to have that same experience that you've heard about. Well, hope is kind of like uncertainty. There's this feeling of, well, I hope it's going to be great. I don't know it will be. I hope it will. Let's see what happens. So there's your uncertainty. And once I get into that company and I start doing business with them, uh, maybe I'm talking to a salesperson and I'm starting to understand who they are. I'm getting into alignment with what they're all about. Now I'm going to move into experience because I'm very quickly moving through these phases where I'm going to start to experience this company, their products, whatever it is. And here's the great one. The next one is really important. And there's probably a pretty big gap. I'm sure there's a gap between, you know, you've got uncertainty and then alignment and and experience, but there's a bigger gap between experience and ownership. Mm -hmm. Because to own an experience, you have to live it more than one time. You have to know what's going to happen the next time. And typically that takes some repetition to say, you know what, whenever I call them, they always call back quickly. They are always knowledgeable. They're always so supportive. And that word always followed by something positive is what puts you into ownership. And by the way, uh, I say positive because if it is positive, by the way, it could always be a bad experience too, I guess, but then you probably would be uh, not willing to move to the next cult, which is the cult of amazement. So when it is a positive experience and it's an owned experience and you know you can count on it, that's when that company is operating at its optimal level with their customer, hence the cult of amazement. And by the way, when a company makes a mistake or there's a problem or a complaint, 
that customer immediately goes back to uncertainty. But the best companies have a system in place, they've trained their people well, and because of the way they handle it, they very quickly jump them right back into amazement. And this is what we ultimately want our customers to say. Again, the word always followed by something good. Even when there's a problem, I know I can always count on them. And so once we're there, we're operating at that level. Very difficult for, for a competitor to come in and steal that business away from a company that's operating at that level of amazement. And even if they are thinking about leaving, they might even give that company a chance to you know, own and keep that business, especially in the B2B world. So uh, this, by the way, trans, transcends across B2B, B2C. Um, wouldn't it be nice if the government caught on to this as well? <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, so you you talk about amazement a lot in this book, but it's also something that you, that's just sort of central to what you talk about all the time. Um, can you maybe share with us what your thoughts are on the key differences between or the importance of creating amazement versus satisfaction? Sure. And what are some of the pitfalls of teams who maybe you know focus too much on satisfaction without up-leveling to that amazement place? Right. So and, and up-leveling to amazement is not a difficult thing to do because I don't think when I explain it to you the way I'm going to in just a moment, you're going to say, I don't want to satisfy customers anymore. That's a waste of time, and they're not going to come back if all I do is satisfy them. There's a big difference between a satisfied customer and a loyal customer. Satisfactory is a rating. Loyalty is an emotion. Once again, that word always comes into play because people don't use that word unless they're somewhat connected to who they're doing business with, uh, in, a, in a positive way anyway. But here's, here's the point with satisfaction. On a scale of one to five, where one is bad and five is great or even amazing, you have one uh, bad, two is fair, three is average, or another word for average is satisfactory. Mm. Four is good, five is amazing, five is great. And if you are a three, well, I don't think, I think being bad and average, they both belong together because anytime you can find something better than just okay, you're gonna move on and do business with them. So I'll quote Horst Schultz, who is the, first president and co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton organization, great hotel chain. And he said when he set out to create this world-class brand that would be recognized as one of the finest hotels in the world, he said the way to do it wasn't to be over the top every time, but just be better than average, 10% better than average, all of the time will make people say you're amazing. And by the way, once in a while, you have a chance to be amazing when something falls in your lap. Uh, maybe if uh, you're a server at a restaurant, you hear, uh, oh, it's their anniversary. I'm going to surprise them with a little dessert and a candle. Or maybe you're uh, the inside salesperson for manufacturer and you hear about a problem one of your customers is having and you're able to do something special for them, expedite an order or whatever. I mean, now those fall in your lap. And by the way, whenever there's a problem, the way you handle it, you know, turns that bad experience into an amazing experience if it's handled correctly. So you can't wait for those to fall into your lap or to happen. You've got to consistently and predictably be a little bit above average. And by the way, your customers are going to define what average is. So find out from them what they think benchmarks are and then figure out a way just to beat it a tiny bit. When you do that, that's where you're in that amazing zone. So by the way, what makes it attainable? 10% better than average. Who can't do that? Right. But doing it all the time is what's hard. Yeah, no, that that's great. What you said there around um, sort of the 
identifying small moments to surprise and or delight. It's actually something that's really top of mind for our marketing team right now. We, we recently had an offsite where we talked about how you create those spark-like moments. And um, if you seek them out, there, there are plenty of, of them available, but um, capitalizing on them consistently is what we all agreed was sort of the challenge. So very closely aligns to what you just shared. So yeah, fantastic. listen, listen closely because that's where you'll find those moments. And a customer may not have a complaint, but they may some, say something to you that makes you realize, ooh, there's an opportunity to fix something here or to make something better. Or you know something, you know, you find out something even personal about that customer. You can surprise them. Yeah. Now, what you're touching on there sort of spans across different teams, potentially, especially at companies like ours within, you know, B2B SaaS. You've previously said that customer service is not a department, but more of a philosophy that needs to be embraced by everyone within a company. So really, how can these companies that are growing and scaling quickly still instill this ethos and, and this approach across their whole organization? What are some of the tools that you would recommend that they adopt? Well, well first of all, if they don't do it, they are going to um, potentially die. Uh, maybe a slow death or maybe a quick win when someone comes along because everybody has to be on board when it comes comes to customer service and experience. So let's start with a journey map is a great tool. Uh, and that's simply plotting out the journey your customer has with you. And there could be multiple journeys, a repeat customer versus a first time customer, a customer that buys this product versus that product, one that goes online versus goes into a store if it's a retail environment. So there's different journeys that a company can have. So many, many of my clients have multiple customer journey maps. Now, once you look at that, you look at ways to improve the opportunity at each interaction point. Those are touch points. By the way, everything we've talked about to thus far is about that. But now we're going deeper into the company, the culture, other employees. Look at what drives those touch points. There is, if I do a journey map, and I decide I want to create a, a map, not just of the top line, but what impacts that top line inside. I'm going to hit virtually every department and every employee in the company that their responsibility ties into something that's going to eventually get to the top and be felt by the customer. And we need to train people as to where that is and why their function is important and remind them of it over and over again, just like you would remind anybody and when you do training, it's not something you did, it's something you do, it's ongoing. So let me give you a quick example. Airlines, it all starts with Jan Carlson's idea of the moment of truth. When a customer comes into contact with any aspect of a the business, they form an impression. He ran Scandinavian Airlines and a passenger is his customer. Now there are many people who work for the airline that will never see that passenger's face, will never talk to the passenger, never interact with the passenger. For example, the person that handles your bags underneath the airport. You see your bag go down that conveyor belt. And the next time you see your bag, it's at your destination on the carousel. Probably a dozen people touch that bag. One person, they looked at the tag, they scanned it, made sure it got to the right pile. And then somebody put it on a cart. Somebody drove it out to the plane. Another person put it on the plane. Somebody in the plane moved it around. And then the whole thing takes place when you land almost in reverse. Lots of people touch the bag. None of them see the customer. But if they fail to do their job, they are failing the passenger and somebody else. They have a second customer, an internal customer. And in that case, it happens to be the poor person who stands in that baggage claim office <laughs> as customers come in and scream at them about their lost luggage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, almost everybody, if they're not dealing directly with the customer, 
deals or supports somebody that is or has some level of, of responsibility that will impact the customer experience. So switching gears a little bit, you recently interviewed uh, Teenswo, founder and CEO at Zora, and you two spoke about the subscription model being the future, yeah. which is a track that they've been been on for quite some time, a better part of the last decade. Can you tell us about how your own membership model approach to customer experience sort of fits in with this change in subscription model? in general, a membership. Okay. So you can look at a customer a number of different ways. One of my books was called uh, The Amazement Revolution. There's that word amazing again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the first of the seven strategies had to do with membership. And when you start looking at your customers as members and not just customers, and what does that really mean? Uh, By the way, I used American Express as the lead case study for that. Uh, They were one of the main case studies throughout the book. What do they say? They call their customers members and they say membership has its privileges. Now, they're a credit card company and you can get other credit cards that give you similar benefits, but their goal and what their culture is about is treating a customer like a member. So what is a member? And and again, the subscription model is important because memberships are, you know, if you're a member of a club, you typically pay dues. If you subscribe to a software program that's a monthly recurring fee, that's a subscription model, software as a service, SaaS, that is a, not, you may not call somebody a member, but it is ongoing revenue. It's a subscription. To tie the two of them together. The idea of subscription is things come to you on a regular basis. You can count on them and you pay for them on a regular basis. Customers love that consistency. They love the confidence that it's always going to happen. If it's a software company, they know that they're going to get the upgrades automatically and they just keep subscribing. And that's the beauty of it. Member. By the way, Allie, are you a member of a club? Oh, that's... See, now I'm asking you a question. Yeah, I, I guess technically, no, I am a member of a gym. Ah, yes, you Which are a member a little bit of like something. Yeah, so and you are maybe a not a member like a of a cult, fancy... So hyper-relevant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a member of the fancy club, but you're a member of some place that you pay money to to get in. Because yes. without paying that membership dues or that subscription, you're not going to be allowed in. And what is it about that gym that you get? You basically get a nice place to work out. You get a towel. You might get a, a shower. I don't even get I actually don't get either of those things. <laughs> oh, no. But you get access to the gym. Great coaching and access to a gym, yes. Yeah, yeah. But you get the idea. So, I mean, somebody could call you a customer or a client, but what if they treated you like a member? You don't have to call somebody a member to be treated like a member. And what would a member get? They would recognize you by name. They would know who you are. They would know your preferences. And I think that's the beginning of a membership mentality. You can call them customer. You can call them patients. You can call them clients, guests, whatever you want to call them but have a membership mentality. So that's what that's about. Absolutely. So Shep, we're, we're coming up close to time, but before we wrap up, ask you one more question. Um, we typically like to ask our guests if there are any leaders in their space who inspire them. Um, so in your case, you know, we'd love to know, is there a customer service or customer experience leader um, that you really admire and, and maybe who's shown up in your books or, or that you've um, just kind of admired from afar over the years? Wow. I mean, I, I would say I'm a cliche when this is, this question is a great question. Nobody's ever asked me this before. The first person, I mean, obviously I've had mentors in my life, but as far as my customer service heroes, uh, 
Horst Schultz from the, the Ritz-Carlton, Jeff Bezos. I mean, how could you not admire that guy? His whole company has been, has been all about being relentless and focusing on the customer. Tony Shea, who created Zappos, who eventually was bought by, you know, by Amazon. Uh, why? Because, you know, the model, it's very similar. So I look at those people and say, wow, if you could sit down with anybody could sit down, spend just time just learning from them and understanding how they thought. Jeff Bezos, especially, I mean, uh, you know, the rumor is there's in the boardroom, there's a, an empty chair. Well, that's the chair for a customer, always keeping the customer in mind recognizing let's forego profit, not all of it maybe, but a chunk of it to make it to become innovative in giving our customers a better experience. Because long-term, we're gonna pick up more customers. They're gonna more than make up for what we might lose in profitability uh, by, by shaving some of that money off and putting it toward you know great ideas. How many people are willing to, to actually, they can say it, but actually do it. So those are some of my idols. Fantastic. Idols. That's a strong word. That is a big word. Yeah. (laughs) Hero, idol. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Lastly, as we we wrap up, where can folks uh, keep up with your work? Wow. Well, the name is Hyken, Shep Hyken, H-Y-K-E-N. So my Twitter handle is at Hyken. My website is Hyken.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Use my full name, Shep Hyken. I didn't get there first or I would have been just Hyken. Uh, but uh, Shep Hyken. I have a great YouTube channel. It's sheptv.com. And there's I have 600 plus videos on there, many of which are just tips that I share uh, on a weekly basis. So lots of content out there. Uh, the book, uh, don't forget the book, Cult of the Customer. So would love for everybody to get on with that. And it's just, it's a great book, but also everything that we do in our daily workshops that we charge our clients lots of money for, all the forms and exercises are actually in the back of that book for companies to use. So I hope they take advantage of that. Great. Thank you, Shep. And we'll be sure to share some of those links directly uh, when we post this podcast shortly. Oh. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank this you has been so an much. awesome interview. Yeah. Yeah, really great to to have you on. Thank you for so so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Shep and Ali. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.